You're listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast, recorded from the Everstwar Chapel Fine Arts Center in Mishawaka, Indiana. Thanks for listening. Yo, what up, Bethel? How we doing today? Happy Donut Friday. I'm excited. I'm always excited for a Friday. Donut Friday is the best. Um, I, I highly recommend that you create your own holiday around your loves, and then, uh, then you get to enjoy them all the time. Actually, Donut Friday came about because I was eating too many donuts, realized that I couldn't eat a donut every day of my life, and uh, live for very long. Your fitness wellness professor should have communicated that to you, but it's a, it's a delight to share with you today just a word, I hope, of encouragement, a word of hope uh, kind of from, uh, from the word. And I want us to think kind of on this question this morning. Is it possible for us to believe something and yet not really believe something at the same time? Or maybe better said, is it possible for us to believe something yet and yet maybe not to believe that it applies in our own situation? I think it may have been one of the most interesting and engaging conversations of my life. I was on a trip. I was in the northern part of the country of Haiti uh, probably a couple of decades ago now. And as a part of this trip, quite honestly, that rocked my world. I, I learned so much. God used this trip and this conversation uh, as transformative in my own life. But I was sitting down with a, there a small group of us with a couple of voodoo witch doctors in Haiti. And we were listening to them tell us about the voodoo spirits that were a part of their work and the spells that they would cast on other people. And one of the witch doctors had uh, kind of held his hand up, and there were multiple rings on his fingers, and he would tell us how each ring signified that he was, in his words, married to that particular voodoo spirit. It was a way of talking about the fact that he was devoted to that voodoo spirit for life. There was nothing that could release him from that. And as the conversation went on, the the witch doctor finally said, he said, now, I, I would want you to know that if you are a real Christian, he would always say that, you're a true, if you're a real Christian, there's nothing that I could do to harm you. I, wouldn't, I would be prevented by the power of your God for me to cast a spell on you that would be harmful to you. And I, I mean, I was just like, dude, like this is like a witch doctor telling me from, from Scripture that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then he said, and then he said, but I don't think your God can do anything to free me from my devotion, my commitment, my marriage to these voodoo spirits. And in the course of our conversation, we tried to convince him that that God whose power he had just acknowledged to us, right, could free him from his, what he would have called his slavery to these voodoo spirits. But we couldn't convince him that in this situation, that God, that powerful God could free him. My heart was saddened. It was broken for this situation. And, and as I reflected on that and thought about some of that, I wondered if at times maybe I haven't been all that different. Maybe there are times that, that I have in my journaling or in my, in my reflections on Scripture, my devotional time, there are times maybe when I as preacher in a church have sought to convince God or convince people of the power of our God, the one who has called us and saved us and who empowers us for living and yet at times have encountered circumstances in which it was hard for me to believe that that God that I had just described in my preaching could do that in my own life. The circumstances 
seem too great. I invite you to turn in your Bibles if you have them or if you've just memorized the whole Bible. Just reference that in your mind, right? Hunter Adams, you just get that in your mind, right? Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 because there's an incident in the ministry of Jesus here that has captured my heart on this point and which God has used to both inspire me with hope but also challenge me at times, right, to really uh, dig into trusting him on this. It's, it comes at a key moment in the gospel. It's Jesus' identity is being revealed to many people and in particular to his disciples here. They've just, uh, Peter, James, and John have just come down from what we call now the Mount of Transfiguration. They've had this awesome mountaintop experience with Jesus where he's transfigured in all of his glory before them, appearing there with Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament prophets. They've heard the voice of God say, this is my son, the one whom I love. Serve him, follow him, right? This great moment. And they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And when we get to verse 14 in Mark chapter 9, we discover that they encounter that some of the other disciples who have been continuing kind of their ministry that they've been doing with Jesus there. We pick up with verse 14, where Mark says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring, bring the boy to me. This is a desperate situation, a desperate father who believes he's brought his son to, to the disciples of Jesus because this is what they've been doing, right? That's the, the hard part of this story. We might, we might say, well, this is a tough situation. Maybe it just needed Jesus, right? The disciples couldn't, couldn't pull this off, but this is precisely what Jesus has sent his disciples out to do. This is exactly what they've been doing in their ministry with Jesus, even as Mark describes it in his gospel. If we were to go back, turn back to Mark chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 there, we would read Mark telling us that Jesus appointed 12 of these disciples, designating them as apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. This is exactly what Jesus had sent them out to do in the first place. And if we read on in the Gospel of Mark, if we read on to Mark chapter 6, we would read this, that those disciples, those same ones, went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and they healed them. So the maddening part of this story, right, is that these disciples are working to do what Jesus had sent them out to do and what they had been doing. But now, now they run into a, much more difficult situation. Now, suddenly, suddenly they can't seem to do it, right, what they had done. Now, there, there are a lot of possible explanations here, but as I wrestle with this text, one of the things I think that perhaps Jesus is pointing them to, because at the end of this story, they come back to Jesus, right? And then like, like, dude, I assume maybe they called Jesus, dude. I would have if I were them. Dude, like, why couldn't, why couldn't we drive this one out? And Jesus tells them there, if you look on down in chapter 9, he says, well, this kind can only come out by fasting and prayer. 
He points them in, in his comment about their struggle in this moment to, to their need to engage the power of God here, which makes me wonder if perhaps the disciples had begun to believe they just were good at this, right, on their own, that they had begun to kind of work and serve and live kind of in their own power rather than in the power of Jesus and the power ultimately of the Spirit at work in all of this. And I realized as I reflected on that that it's easy for me, and I'm guessing maybe for some of us who are here this morning, to kind of get comfortable with doing life thinking we kind of got this together. And, and, and we would certainly talk about our need for God's help and God's grace and God's power, but really, if God were suddenly to withdraw His power, we'd discover that things aren't really different. We've been living in our own effort, right? We've been trying this on our own. And, and, and we kind of fall in kind of two extremes, in my experience, if I reflect on my own life. One of those is to think that we just have the capability in and of ourselves to do this. We kind of got it down, right? We can do it and, and to, to not recognize, right, that it's the power of God that we need, that we will encounter a moment like this or circumstances like this or storms or demons in our lives where we need the power and the grace of God because we can't do it on our own. The other extreme is to think that we just can't, right? That, that to kind of, kind of rule out, kind of not to factor in God's power and grace as we encounter some of these kind of situations, to think that it's just up to us. As a pastor for 21 years, I would have people sitting in my office and they were facing difficult circumstances. Sometimes it was a sinful pattern in their life they couldn't overcome. Sometimes it was suffering of different things and they would just say to me, I just don't think I can do this. And I would say to them, I don't think you can either. And there was always kind of this look of shock on their face, like, wait, you're the pastor here. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to be encouraging me, right? You're supposed to be telling me, right? I said, I don't think you can, but I do believe that God at work in your life as you embrace his work, his grace, and cooperate with that, I believe God can do something in your life about this. Right? You're not limited simply by what you can do. And I think the disciples struggle in this text, at least for me suggests that I need to be challenged at times on that. Am I, really, am I really recognizing my need for God's grace and power in the circumstances that I face? Am I really looking to that, or am I striving kind of on my own? But the story continues with the man there before Jesus in Mark chapter 9, a desperate father, compassionate, deeply concerned for his son. And you saw the description there of what happens, what this demon had done in his life. And, and from further questioning of Jesus here, we discover it's been a long time. This has been going on. Look with me at verse 20. So they, they brought the son to Jesus there, right? And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and he rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And then notice what dad says. But if you can do anything, anything, help us. Take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. This is a desperate father He's deeply, deeply concerned for his son. These are circumstances. This is not just like it's, it's kind of an inconvenience, right? This is, this is a call of desperation, right? The father, father, if you can do 
anything, right? And, and there's even a suggestion here by his question, right, that, that he's not sure that Jesus can, right? There's a conditional that's here. And, and it seems to be that he believes that Jesus would want to, but he's having trouble really believing that Jesus can. And there's a certain irony in that, right? Because as the reader of the gospel now, we know, right, that Jesus is the Son of God, the very God incarnate, right, in the flesh, the power of God present kind of in this moment. And the man looks at him and says, you know, if you can do anything, anything about this, take pity on us and help us. And I love Jesus' response. If? <laughs> if you can? Like, really? And it's easy, it would be easy for us to kind of chuckle about that with the Father, except the reality is that I, at least I'll speak for myself this morning. I think there are times when I've said to Jesus, you know, if you can do something about this, but I don't know, it's tough. And yet someone who is a student of the Bible would know that this Son of God incarnate, the God who is present before this Father who is pleading with him, if you can do anything, is the God of the impossible, right? There's this thread that runs throughout Scripture. It begins in Genesis in those, uh, those chapters that describe Abraham and Sarah there, the ones to whom God had given a promise that from them would come this great nation of the people of God, but they're old, they're beyond childbearing years, and, and they even laugh at the notion that this would happen, and the angel says in that moment, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is the God who stands before the Father. Job, in his book, this long kind of reflection on the nature, the issues of suffering and evil in our lives, Job himself, at the conclusion of his ordeal, says to God in Job, Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the prophet who knew pain and hardship more than any other prophet probably in Scripture, in Jeremiah 32 says, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arms. Nothing is is too hard for you. The God who stands before this Father is the God for whom nothing is too hard. And if we move into the New Testament, an angel appears to Mary and says, you're a virgin, but you're going to give birth to the very Son of God, the Savior, the one who will save his people from his sins. Mary says, well, how can that be? And the angel there in Luke 137 says, nothing is impossible with God. The God who stands before this Father in this moment is the God for whom nothing is impossible. And later on in the ministry of Jesus, there's this question that comes up from the disciples. Who can be saved if, uh, if the, the wealthy, the rich young ruler can't be saved in all of this? And Jesus says to them there in Matthew 19, with man this is impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. The God who stood before this Father was the God of the impossible. This father is looking him in the eyes and saying, if, if you can do anything about this, take pity on us and help us. And in the supreme example of this, my friends, that God takes, takes an instrument of execution, the ugliest form of torture and death that the Romans could dream up, 
and makes that the very instrument of salvation for us all. Jesus himself, who stood before this Father, went to the cross for us, and in what looked like the ugliest defeat for good uh, and for God, uh, turned into the very instrument of salvation for us, such that now we plaster crosses all over our churches and other buildings as a symbol of a God who can do something like that. The God who stood before this Father could do that kind of thing, the impossible. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Scripture teaches about this God? I believe this Father wanted to. But it's easy for us, isn't it? Oftentimes, when the storms are fierce, I chase them. I know, a fierce storm. When the storms are fierce, our tendency sometimes is to wonder if maybe this is too big for him. When my son was little, he's tall now, really tall and much older, but when he was really little, he was very frightened of water, like swimming. Like, and I was trying to help him. Like, we wanted our kids to learn to swim and enjoy, you know, the recreation of swimming and that kind of thing, but he was deathly afraid of that feeling that you feel when you start to float in water, right? That's hard for some young children, hard for them to get. And he was, he was struggling with that. We would go to a pool, a community pool, or we would go to the beach or something like that. And like, we wanted him to be comfortable in water. We wanted to teach him this. And he was just frightened. And so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a driven guy. And so I'm like, I, I'm a teacher too. Like, I'm gonna teach my son to swim, right? I'm gonna do this at a young age. And so I thought what I, I had what it was a brilliant idea. So one night I just said to him, I said, Tyler, come up upstairs. We're gonna, we're gonna learn to float tonight. And so I filled the bathtub with, uh, with water, and, uh, and I put him in the water, and I, I had him lay out uh, on the water there, and I held him kind of in the water in the bathtub, and then I would slowly slide my hands out, and he would start to feel that sense of floating, but that was frightening to him, and he would like, you know, put his hands down or his feet or whatever, and he would kind of give up, and we, we battled that fear for like two hours one night in the bathtub. I think I even had to like run new water because it was getting too cold, uh, that kind of thing, and finally the moment came. It really did. The moment came when he felt that and it didn't, it didn't scare him anymore. He floated. Man, we celebrated. We partied that night. He could float on water. I thought, we are on our way. And the next weekend, we went out to a state park, not too far from where we lived, and there was a pool there. And I'm like, Tyler, come on, man. We're going to float in the pool just like we did in the bathtub. And, and we went out, and the water's only like, like, I don't know, three or four feet deep, something like that. I'm holding him. I'm like, dude, we're going to do this. We're going to do it. You know, he's like, I can't, Dad. I'm like, what do you mean you can't? Like, we, we did this like a week ago. He says, no, I, I can't. It's too deep. I'm like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you've got the power to float, right? You can do this. And I held him out, you know, in the water there. And I, I kind of slowly slid my arms out and he buckled at the waist and, and, and we battled this. And in the end, it was, a, it was the defeat. I said, son, like, if you can float in the bathtub, right, you can you can float anywhere. It doesn't matter how deep it is, right? You have this power to float. You can do that anywhere. It doesn't matter how hard the storm is, how deep the water is, <laughs> right? You can, you can do this anywhere. And I was, I was challenged by God as I reflected on my failure as a dad to teach him to float. By the way, he later became a lifeguard. <laughs> God transforms everything, right? But God challenged me because as I reflected on that, I wondered, are there times when I've taught people that God is the God of the impossible, 
When in a sermon, like I just did a moment ago for us, I've reminded us of this thread of the very nature of God, who God is. That's why theology is so important. We know who God is, but when we see how deep the water is, when I see how deep the water is, I start to wonder, maybe this is too deep for him. Maybe, and God's saying, like, this is my power. Like, I'm not limited. It doesn't matter how deep the water is. Keith, trust me on this. Believe me on this. And what I love about this story is that this father gives voice, I think, to what I often feel in those moments. If we read on in verse 24, Jesus says, you know, anything is possible for him who believes. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running for the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. But boy, that response, I do believe, but help my unbelief resonates with my soul at some really key moments in my life. Lord, I, I, with my head, I want to say, like, you are capable of this, but with my heart, I really, I'm really struggling to believe that that can happen in this kind of situation. And yet, Jesus here seems to reward the earnestness of the man who asks about this. I think sometimes one of our challenges, as we've noted already, is that sometimes we get locked into a particular frame of reference of what we're capable of doing, right? I can float in the tub, <laughs> but I can't float in the 12-foot water or the 25 feet of water or whatever the case may be. And we, we just don't factor in what God might be able to do, or we can't bring ourselves to believe that God might do that. A number of years ago, I was in another country. I was in the country of Ecuador as a part of a, a team. We were actually, in that case, we were helping with some construction, partnering with a group in a village, a little village called Naranjito on the, uh, Naranjito on the coast of uh, Ecuador there. And we had gone, uh, we had paused our construction work on Wednesday to go to the church service that the church uh, had there every time. And it was in Spanish. I don't know a lot of Spanish. I picked up a little bit along the way, but my Spanish is not very good. I usually get a sentence out and then... Um, People understand that he, uh, he can't speak it uh, very well. And so I sat through this church service uh, trying to listen and enjoying the, the fervor and the excitement that, that these folks uh, really felt in their faith and listening to the pastor preach. He was very passionate about what he was preaching on there, so I'm sure it was good uh, what was there, but I, I couldn't understand any of it. And then, and then he, uh, he paused and he prayed and some musicians came up and they were starting to play some music and the missionary who was our host there in, in Arenjito, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, uh, he said Keith, uh, you, just, you should just know that the pastor has invited people to come forward and to be prayed for, anointed with oil and prayed for, for healing. And you should also know culturally that the expectation would be, because you're a pastor, that you should, you should do that, right? You should anoint people with oil and pray for them. And I turned around with this panicked look on my face, and I said, John, I can't speak Spanish. And without missing a lick, he said, Keith, it's okay. God understands English. And I realized, right, I, I was limiting what God could do. And John went on and he said, Keith, 
They don't care if they understand your prayer. They want God to understand. They want you to pray for them. They, they want you to minister to them regardless of whether you know that, right? And, and so in those moments, I'm realizing how, how easy it is for me to limit what I think God might be able to do to say, help my unbelief, Lord. But Jesus rewards the earnestness of this father here. And the father, the father believes as much as he can and and Jesus embraces that, right? But he takes a step of faith, like, I believe, Lord, help me, I'm, I believe, please do something. Like, there is a moment here where he seems to have this belief that Jesus might actually be able to do something in the moment, and God embraces that. And, and I believe, out of the story, deepens this father's faith to believe even greater things of what Christ might do, given what he sees there. But it's hard sometimes in those moments when the water seems deep, isn't it? hard sometimes. A few years later, my wife and I were planting a church down on the southwest kind of side of the city of Indianapolis, and uh, we, had, we were kind of doing it as a daughter church plant from a mother church, and the mother church was sort of paying part of my salaries and benefits, salary and benefits as the pastor to kind of help support it, and then the goal was that the church would essentially buy away one day a week of my time, becoming fully independent. The idea was to kind of provide some incentive for that, but also support for that, and, and one of the joyous things was that this church plant took off much more quickly than we had planned, and we actually had gotten to a point where our new church plant now was able to, to take on full support of me as their pastor, and, and this was a great moment of celebration. We were kind of celebrating God's faithfulness in all of this, and we were going to have a service on Sunday morning. The uh, board of elders from the mother church were going to come, and there was going to be this kind of celebration of just how great this, this whole thing was going. And Saturday night, as we were falling asleep in the darkness on Saturday night, my wife and I were talking about this, and I was so excited, right? This was, we were ahead of schedule by months in terms of what we had anticipated. We had seen what God was doing in this church plant, and, uh, and I'm just talking about, I'm just all, all excited. You know, I can't sleep. I'm all excited about this. And, and, uh, and so finally, finally, I kind of had calmed down enough that our conversation hit sort of a lull. And then you need to understand that my wife is an accountant. So where are the accounting majors in the room? I'm thankful for y'all. I'm glad that God has wired you in the way that he has. But sometimes I don't understand you accounting people, right? So my wife, who is an accountant, out of the silence, suddenly says, well, what are we going to do if this church fails? There's this long, awkward pause in the darkness. I hadn't even considered that possibility. Hadn't even thought about the fact that what might happen if we, if this didn't go, like this was, we were now fully independent of the mother church. Now what she's thinking is wisdom, right? That's a good thing to think about. I'm not complaining about that, but it it confronted me with kind of this reality. And and I remember in the moment, my mind racing, like, I don't know, I'm not sure. I don't have a plan for that. I hadn't considered that possibility. I'm not sure what we might do. And after a long, awkward pause, I finally said to her, and I wish I could say I said it with confidence, but it sounded a lot more, I suspect, like the father in this story. I said, well, I guess we'll just have to trust that God will lead and provide and care for us. I wish I had had the confidence to say, it doesn't matter if it does fail, God will see us through and on to the next thing and whatever that looks like. I wish I had had the confidence in all of that, but it was more like, Lord, I, I help my unbelief here. But, but even, in the, even in the hesitancy, there was a, I guess in those kind of moments, the best thing we can do is trust a God 
who is like we read in Scripture, right? A God who is capable of the impossible. And when, when we really believe that, it changes how we live. It changes our mindset. It changes our perspective, how we see the dip depth of the water, how we see the, the raging of the storm. The, we may not know all of the answers, and we may not know what we're, how we're going to pay the bills in that case, but we have a confidence that if we're in that situation, God will see us through nonetheless. He is a God of the impossible. When we really believe that, right, we really believe, then it changes how we live. It changes what we do. It changes how we approach that. Ken Davis tells of an assignment he had in college. So for a speech class, some of you perhaps have speech with Dr. McLaughlin or Dr. Theo, and you've had to do some sort of demonstration. That was the assignment that Ken had to do. He had to demonstrate some principle for people, and, uh, and they were going to be graded, particularly on the way in which they did that with clarity, with creativity, and driving their point home so that it was memorable for others. And so Ken went to work thinking about how he might illustrate, demonstrate the law of the pendulum for his class. And he he did his talk on the day that it was due. For his talk, he had uh, taken a little toy top and tied it to a string and then tied the top of that string to one of those brackets that came out from the, the blackboard at the front of the room. And, uh, and of course, he explained uh, to the class in his demonstration talk that the law of the pendulum is simply that uh, the pendulum, when it is released, never returns to a point higher or farther than from which it was initially released because of friction and gravity. Uh, eventually, each point the pendulum in the pendulum swing is a little bit less than the point from which it was released until eventually it comes to a point of stasis where all forces acting on the pendulum are equal. My physics teacher, Charlie Eisen, in high school would be so proud of me in this moment. Dr. Suchipto may have some words of correction for me after chapel today, and that's all right. But for his talk then, he took that toy top and he held it up on the side of the blackboard and he made a mark on the board where the top was and he let it go. And it swung around the other side and then it swung back and he made another mark on the board, swung back, made another mark until eventually, after about a minute, it had come to a point of stasis there and was still in the front of the board. And everyone could see the marks on the board, each one successively farther away from the point at which it was released. And he felt like he had demonstrated the point. He had proved to them the law of the pendulum, and he asked them then if they believed that the law of the pendulum was true. And they all said yes. Even the professor kind of applauded from the back of the room and started coming forward thinking that Davis's demonstration was done. But he said, wait a minute. He said, I'm not quite finished yet. I had one more piece of this. He, uh, he said, but professor, since you're standing, if you could just come over here to, uh, to this chair. And at the wall on the side of the room was a table there, and he had set a chair on top of the table so that the back of it was against the cement block wall of the classroom. And he asked the professor if he would sit in that chair, which he did, and he made sure that the cement block wall was against the back of his head. And then he took what everyone had assumed was just kind of an illustration, um, 250 pounds of weight hung with 500-pound parachute cord latched into the beams in the ceiling, he removed the ceiling tiles, 
physical plant wouldn't ask that you not do that in the AC. But he took that and he pulled those weights over so that they were right in front of the nose of the professor who's sitting in the chair with the cement block wall at the back of his head. And he held the weights in front of the professor's nose and he said, Professor, I just demonstrated for the class that the law of the pendulum is true. Do you believe the law of the pendulum is true? An even longer pause than I gave on that night in the darkness when I was wondering if I could believe in a God who would see me through. Finally, the professor whispered to him, yes. And as soon as he did, Davis let go of the weights. 250 pounds swung all the way across the front of the classroom. Everybody watched. And then they hit the apex on the other side and began to swing back. Everybody watched. And he said, as they got closer to the wall where the professor was sitting, Davis writes in his book, I've never seen a man move faster in my life. (laughs) He scrambled down. Everybody laughed. And he said to the class, does he believe that the law of the pendulum is true? And everybody said, no. When we believe something, it changes how we live, how we respond, how we see things. I've tried to hopefully inspire you today with the thought that we have a God who can do the impossible. Some of you are in some pretty deep water for lots of different reasons. If we had the time this morning, we could share some of the storms that we're enduring, some of the depths of the waters that we're thrashing around in, some of the deep concerns that we have. And I hope that I have given you a reminder, right, of the kind of God who is a part of all of this. My hope would be that you can believe, really believe that that God, the God of the impossible, can work in your life in the circumstances that you're in, no matter how deep the water really is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this reminder from your word of your power, of your grace, of your heart for those who say, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Father, we've tried to be reminded this morning from your word of of just the kind of God you are, of our theology that can inform our life. And particularly for those today, God, who are facing deep waters, raging storms, challenges that would seem, from a human perspective, to be impossible, to be inspired today, even even if all we can say is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. May we look to you And trust who you are, no matter how deep the water seems in the moment. God, would would you remind us and inspire us of that today, that how we live in the days that lie ahead would be shaped by a faith that's anchored firmly in a God for whom all things are possible. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bethel University Chapel podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and get more information at chapel.betheluniversity.edu or check us out on the iTunes store by searching for Bethel University Chapel.